So, um, if you ever take a tour around this building, and I will exchange tours for um, an extremely good lunch, uh, if you ever take a tour around this building, you will notice a repeating motif. Now, uh, this is just one of those ideas you have when you're planning a sermon, it might not work, but uh, I'd like us all uh, for two minutes to just stand up, have a wander around this room, and have a look for something you may not have explicitly looked for before. How many crosses can you find in this room? Josh, it is not a competition, um, but how many crosses can you find in this room? I actually was surprised by how few there were, but have a look around, see what you can find. Um, Access all areas. Off you go. Um, so there is, there is, it's not a competition, there is no definitive answer. I mean, there is, but I haven't counted them. Um, but when I looked around, I could find, um, I could actually find three behind me. You can see two behind me. There is also one on the stained glass window up behind the screen at the moment. Um, there is a cross on the bell tower roof. You can't see that from here. Uh, and also one further down the roof over here. There is a cross in a painting over there. Just as I was sitting here earlier, I noticed there's kind of a stealth cross on that carving over there, uh, tucked in behind some fruit and veg. Not sure what the fruit and veg is doing there. Um, so in any church, particularly in our church, you'll find, you'll find a number of crosses. But in any church, you'll find lots of crosses. They are on the roof. They are in the windows. They are in the artwork. Um, most, a good, yeah, most churches are built so that when you view them from above, they're in the shape of a cross. Ours actually isn't. Um, many Christians wear a cross around their necks. At a baptism or on Ash Wednesday, we make a sign of a cross on each other's foreheads. Lots of our songs are exclusively about the cross. Um, and even if you look underneath your seats you will find there is nothing there because I'm not that creative. Um, it's found throughout Christian art. Uh, the artist Holman Hunt, who um, is often met- mentioned in the Alpha Course, uh, did a, um, uh, a picture called The Shadow of Death, uh, which is going to come up. And um, it's Jesus, a picture of Jesus as he would have been in his early life as a carpenter. And as he stretches after a hard day at work, it projects a shadow of a cross behind him. But that is Jesus before he would even have begun his ministry, the ministry that ended with his death. And the cross is depicted in there even then. We seem, as Christians, to be obsessed with crosses. Why? Well, symbols are significant. They are shorthand for what's important to us. This is a, um, a symbol that I designed when I was about 12. Um, it's my two initials kind of joined together. I say I designed it. I am so uncreative that I actually can't really come up with the idea of smashing two letters together. So my art teacher had to help me even with that. Um, but then <clears throat> this symbol is much more significant. That, that was kind of a symbol of me coming of age. This symbol is much more significant. Um, this, this is one I drew when I was a teenager and I'd just been dumped by my girlfriend and I was moping around and you can probably guess what her first initial was and um, I used to draw that everywhere and I think the significance of that symbol is that I was a little bit sad. Um, We as Christians could have chosen anything to be our Christian symbol. We could have used a crib symbolizing the incarnation, God becoming man. Um, We could have gone with a boat or with a hillock, places that Jesus often used as his pulpits to symbolize him as a great teacher. Um, the towel that he wrapped around himself when he washed the disciples' feet would have symbolized um, the servant king. The empty tomb would have shown us the resurrection, or the throne that he sits on at the Father's side showing his authority over the earth. We could have picked any of these things, but the early church, they chose the cross. The cross symbolizes the place and manner of Jesus' death. 
Now, I uh, personally get quite irritated by unexplained Christian jargon, so I'm just going to take a moment um, to warn you that from here on, um, now that I've explained the symbol of the cross, I will be referring to the cross and the um, idea of Jesus's death and sacrifice on the cross interchangeably um, because that is what that symbol means to us um, christians often kind of throw that one in there they talk about the cross and i think it for the uninitiated it can be really unhelpful so i'm just putting that out there now um, it's not just the church that obsess about the cross about jesus's death jesus himself was um, focused on his end from the very beginning Jesus was focused on his end from the very beginning. His earliest recorded miracle is in John 2, more than three years before he was to die, well more than three years before he was to die. Um, He was at a wedding and they had run out of wine and his mother Mary came to him and asked him to do something about it. And what did he say? He said, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, I don't know how that reads to you, but I have always kind of read it as Jesus being kind of, stop bothering me, mum, I'm chilling out, this isn't work time, I don't want to deal with that right now, this is not my time. Um, That is not really where he's going with it, though. Um, When you read through the Gospel of John, you find that he repeats this idea throughout, my hour has not yet come, my time has not yet come, and it becomes apparent that what he's talking about is the hour of his death. So right at the beginning, at his first miracle, Jesus is talking about his death. In all the Gospels, Jesus seems obsessed with his death, and not in a self-pitying Shakespearean, woe is me, I'm going to die away, but actually in, with a sense that this is really, really important. He even commands his disciples to eat bread and drink wine in memory of him, something we still do 2,000 years later. Think about that for a second. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to remember his life. He tells them to remember his death. That's a bit weird. The cross is not incidental to Jesus' ethical teaching or his miraculous ministry or to his resurrection. It is at the heart of everything Jesus does. The major contributors to the New Testament don't shirk on this cross stuff either. Um, It is talked about at length in almost every single book. Um, I'll just leave that there for a moment if you digest a number of quotes from the New Testament all the different authors um, about um, Jesus' death. Paul then goes this far in Galatians 6.14. He says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now the Greek that is translated here as boast doesn't actually have a, a an exact translation in English. It means to glory, to take pride in, to live for. Um, Paul is saying that Jesus' cross is the absolute centre of his life, and actually there is room for nothing else but Jesus' cross in the centre of Paul's life. The Bishop of Liverpool in 1880, uh, sorry, the Bishop of Liverpool from 1880 to 1900, J.C. Ryle, summed up the importance of the cross like this. If you have not yet found out that Christ crucified is the foundation of the whole volume, you have read your Bible hitherto to very little profit. Your religion is a heaven without a sun, an arch without a keystone, a compass without a needle, a clock without a spring or weights, a lamp without oil. Beware, I say again, of a religion without the cross. Why the cross? 
It was a symbol of shame to the Romans. They would only kill their most despicable criminals that way. To the Jews, it was not just a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of being cut off from God. The Old Testament told them that anyone who was hung on a tree, uh, who died on a tree, was hung on a tree, was cursed by God. Why is this at the very heart of Paul's life and not some other aspect of what Jesus did? Well, first of all, it is because it is the means of our acceptance by God. Indeed, there is no other way of acceptance by God. The Bible is very clear. Before we can talk about the cross, we need to be clear about the problem that the cross solves. It is this. How can I, a guilty sinner, stand before a holy and just God? How can I, a guilty sinner, stand before a holy and just God? The Bible says it. We are all created in the image of God. Each and every one of us carries the perfect image of our perfect creator. That image cannot be destroyed. Every single human is an image of God, but it can be defaced. And it is defaced by the things that we do wrong to ourselves, to one another, and to God. Every time we sin, we deface the image of God in us, but it is never destroyed. We have all, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Romans 3.23. Sin is when we choose to go our own way. Sin is every action where we say, I don't need you, God. And we try to put ourselves on the throne of our own lives. It's very obvious in people like Richard Dawkins who stand up and say, there probably is no God. Openly turning his back on God. It's slightly less so for people who take the position and say, yes, yes, there is a God, but actually I don't see why I should do what he says. It may even feel quite subtle for those of us who try to live by God's word, um, but then we go away and gossip creeps in. We talk about people behind their backs, and we don't control our tempers, and we fail to help the people who need it. Every time we go our own way instead of God's, we are sinning. We are falling short of the glory of God. And that sin separates us from God, and it puts us under his wrath. When we sin, we hurt God, we hurt ourselves, we hurt the people around us, and that makes God angry. Just as a parent is angry if someone hurts their child, God is justifiably angry when we hurt one of his. The consequence of God's anger is a just punishment for sin. Separation from God, because he is just and perfect, and the unjust and the imperfect cannot bear his presence. And being under God's wrath, because a just God, because to a just God, where there is wrongdoing, there must be punishment. There must. Christianity is unique among the world religions, because the Bible tells us that actually we can't work our own way back to God. We can't fix it. Even secularism will tell you, actually, that you are to make something of yourself. You are the only one who can perfect yourself. Other world religions will say that our job is to make ourselves better, to try to reach perfection so that we can reach God. The Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible tells us we all fall short, no matter what we do, because you can't make up for a wrong with a right. And because the gap between us and God is so vast that no matter what you chuck into it, it's still going to be vast. 
So we have a problem. We are sinners. We are under God's wrath, and we can't fix it for ourselves, no matter how hard we might try. When my father retired, um, he did what all his friends did, for reasons I don't understand, and went to Devon. And he bought, not heaven, Devon, he bought a cottage in Devon, um, and he decided to fit it up. It wasn't in a great state. And while he was fitting it up, one of the things he discovered, he, he was a builder uh, by trade for a long time, so he knew how to do these things. One of the things he discovered was that his kitchen was um, getting very wet, not quite flooded, but very wet every time it rained. And he couldn't work this out. There was nothing wrong with the ceiling. Um, and basically, eventually, worked out it must be coming through the wall. And when they started tearing off the plaster on this wall to find out what the problem was, they found out that the builders who had put up this wall hadn't. They found that behind the plaster, what there was, and this is uncanny, was a load of dirt. They had effectively just plastered over the muck that was already there. And that was not holding water out, unsurprisingly. If we don't acknowledge our sin, if we refuse to accept something that the Bible says is a sin, is a sin, if we avoid telling people that they do sin, then just like those dodgy builders at my dad's house, we are building something on dodgy foundations. And a building built on dodgy foundations lets water in when it rains. In Matthew 23, 27 to 28, Jesus just described some Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but dead on the inside, because they were often seen to do what they said was right, but they were not owning up to their sin. They genuinely thought they were doing it all right. They wouldn't admit, they couldn't admit to their own sin. Our human condition is extremely serious. On our own, we are permanently cut off from God. And like the wall made out of dirt at my dad's house, no matter how much good stuff we put over that sin, it doesn't change what's underneath. Nothing we can do can make us right with God. So instead, God did something. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus substituted for us when he died on that cross. He, he is the only sinless person who has ever lived. And so he is the only person who didn't deserve death. And then he died instead of us who do deserve death. That is what we commemorate at communion every week at church because our faith continues daily where it begins, on the cross. Um... I've talked for a while. Take a moment and talk to two or three people around you. Um, try not to leave anyone out. Um, are there things in your life, I think there probably are for all of us, that you do to try to earn God's love? And what might they be? Off you go. Two, three minutes. So we have a problem that we need Jesus to solve. Our sin. And his solution is the cross. So now we've, we're finally there. We're talking about the cross. Um, the Sunday school answer to the question, why did Jesus die, uh, might be as a substitute, well, obviously the Sunday school answer to everything is yes, no, or Jesus, but um, might be he died as a substitute for me so that I could be forgiven for my sins. Now, although in our Sunday school, actually, I, they're quite a lot, it's much more likely you're going to get, um, what was the question? Um, it has happened. Um, 
That's not just good news, but it is the good news. Jesus died as a substitute for me so I could be forgiven for my sins. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, whatever you think of yourself, God loves you and wants you to offer you forgiveness and to achieve um, and to achieve that, rather, he loved you so much that he came down to earth and died to make it happen. But what happened on the cross is actually a little more complicated than that makes it sound. The Bible offers several models to help us understand what happened on the cross, and um, one of the most helpful for me is the model of justification. It's a borrowed legal term. It is, it is a verdict at a trial. It's the opposite of condemnation. We now deserve condemnation, but because of Jesus' death on the cross, we are justified instead. We deserve condemnation, but because of Jesus' death, we are justified rather than condemned. And there are five aspects to biblical justification. First of all, it's source. Romans 3.24 tells us we are justified freely by his grace. Our justification is free to us. It is undeserved, it is unearned, and it is not the result of any action on our part. It is a gift, of us, a gift to us entirely out of God's love for us. So its source is grace. Secondly, it's ground, the ground of justification. Romans 5.9 says that we are justified by his blood. That means Jesus' death. Although our justification is free to us, it is not free to God. Although our justification is free to us, it is not free to God. There's a price to our sin, and in order for, uh, in order for God to be just, that price has to be paid, and God is a just God. However, the law now has no claim on us because that price has been paid. A substitution has been made. Like when you get your Tesco order and they've substituted the green pepper you asked for for eight tins of gherkins, um, Jesus substituted for us on the cross. He was swapped in. We were condemned, but Jesus met the penalty, and so now we are justified and he was condemned. Thirdly, justification has a sphere, and its sphere, it, sphere is in Christ. Galatians 2.17 describes us as being justified in Christ. We are justified only when we are united to Christ, or in Christ, as the Bible describes it. When we are united to Christ, the fruit of that should be that we are part of his community and we are committed to living a new life. We need to be united to Christ, in Christ, for that forgiveness. Fourthly, its means, justification's means, is through faith. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The things we do are not the reason that we are justified, not by a long chalk. Nothing that we do achieves our justification. But we do need to choose to accept the gift given by God's grace and by Christ's blood. Now, let's not get mixed up in thinking that faith is a work. Faith is, faith is not something we do. Faith is a choice you make. Um, it is not an act in itself. It doesn't make us worthy that we have faith. Um, if you like, faith is the hand that accepts God's gift. 
Uh, an illustration I like to use for this is a real-life piece of history, so it's doubly exciting. Um, in 1830, there was a bank robber called George Wilson, and uh, along with um, one of his accomplices, he knocked over a, um, a federal mail coach and um, stole the content, presumably. Uh, they were caught, and they were sentenced to be hanged by the neck until dead. That was the sentence for their crimes. Um, but for some reason, George Wilson, this bank robber, was connected. And he knew some people who knew some people who um, made contact with the president of the United States then, Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson arranged for a pardon for George Wilson. And for reasons that history does not record, George Wilson did not accept that pardon. He chose to reject it. And this actually went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, who said that a pardon, for a pardon to be valid, it has to be accepted. It can't be forced on someone. It has to be your choice to accept it. George Wilson didn't have to do anything to accept that pardon. All he had to do was say yes. But he chose not to. Finally, the final aspect of justification is its fruit. We are saved for good works. Good works are absolutely not the cause of our justification. We are not justified because we do good stuff. But they should be the result. We know what we've done. We know what we deserve. And we know that something beyond price has been paid so that we don't have to pay that penalty. So we should respond in good works towards God, before God. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works. You'll notice that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are created in Christ Jesus by his sacrifice. That is not something that was in us beforehand. It is something we need to do as a response. This is what's called the grand doctrine of justification. I know it sounds great. I learned it myself just the other day. Its origin is God's grace and its ground is Christ's blood. The sphere of its enjoyment is in Christ. It is received by faith. And its fruit is good works. Um, I think now is another good moment to pause. And just, there's been quite a lot of input there, um, digested amongst ourselves. Um, may I suggest that you discuss um, with the person next to you, or people next to you, which aspects of justification stood out for you there? Are there parts of that that you haven't considered before? Are there parts of it that maybe you disagree with profoundly? Um, something that didn't make sense to you now is a good time to thrash that out with somebody else. Off you go. Okay, let's bring it back together. Thank you very much. So, we are justified by Jesus' work on the cross. That is our status before, before God. We are declared not guilty. We are given the right to enter eternal life. We are free from the consequences of our sin. But that does not in itself change who we are. The simple fact that we are declared righteous does not mean that we are made righteous. 
God judges us all as if we have lived like Christ, but that does not instantly make us like Christ. There are two common responses to that, I think. One is to worry, that is not to worry about our sin at all. Um, we're forgiven. So why does it matter how we live now? I've already talked, actually, about how it is wrong to trivialize sin. If we make light of sin, we make light of the solution, and there is nothing to be made light of in Jesus' death on the cross. The other side of it is to worry that we're not responding well enough. We could worry that we must live perfectly Christ-like lives now and worry that, about what might happen if we don't. Uh, if that's you, then do not worry. Whoever God justifies, he also regenerates. But it might be helpful to look at the differences between our status with God and our walk with God. We've just been talking about our status. We are justified and the process of becoming more Christ-like, our walk with God is, uh, so we've talked about justification, our walk with God is called sanctification, becoming more Christ-like. Let's have a look at the differences. Um, justification is God's judicial verdict. It's a declaration that he has made. It is that legal thing we were talking about. Whereas sanctification is God's moral activity in our lives. His work to transform us. Justification happened through the death of God's Son, whereas our sanctification, becoming more Christ-like, happens through the presence of his Holy Spirit in us and his work through us. Justification was instantaneous. It's a done deal, once for all time. Jesus doesn't have to die again. Uh, the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you are declared justified. Sanctification, though, is gradual and occasionally frustrating. We are all works in progress. Justification is complete. You do not need topping up. You are justified. Um, there is nothing else that you need to do to get right with God. Sanctification, though, is incomplete until the day of the resurrection when we will all be made perfect and there will be, praise the Lord, no more sin. Until then, not one of us is perfectly Christ-like today and not one of us will be perfectly Christ-like tomorrow unless the resurrection happens tomorrow. Um, and finally, justification is by faith alone. All you need to do is believe. On the other hand, we have to work to become more Christ-like. As I said before, we don't do it alone. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is working alongside us to regenerate us. It is God's work too, but it is an act of both faith and works, our sanctification. And it's really important to keep those two things separate, justification and sanctification, because when you get them tied up, you start worrying about whether you're justified because of some of the things you've done. And that's not helpful. So, God declares us righteous through the death of his son by faith alone so that our justification is both instantaneous and complete. I'll say that again. God declares us righteous through the death of his son by faith alone so that our justification is both instantaneous and complete. But he makes us righteous through the presence of his Holy Spirit in us by faith and works, and the process is both gradual and incomplete until the resurrection. So how does all of this affect our daily lives? Because as Jago said last week, the Bible is like a mirror, and if we look into it and we don't discover anything new and, and make changes, then we've made a mistake. How does all this affect our daily lives? Let's go back to the passage I started with, Galatians 6, 14. 
Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You'll spot that there is only one cross in this verse, but there are three crucifixions. There's only one cross, the cross of Christ, but in the verse, Christ is crucified, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. Three crucifixions on only one cross. Quite an impressive feat. But what does it mean for us to be crucified to the world and the world to us? Jesus died as our substitute so that we did not have to die for our sinful lives. Paul is revealing that he also died as our representative. If we choose to live a Christian life, then in a sense, we died with Jesus. Jesus said the same thing himself in Mark 8, 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If we were living in first century Palestine and we saw someone walking down the street with a cross over their shoulder, it's not like 21st century Clapham where you think, oh gosh, he's got a lovely new ornament for his garden. I wonder if I can get one at Oliver Bonus. It, it was a death sentence. You knew why that, that person was walking down the street with a cross on their shoulders. To take up your cross is a death sentence. The world today, no, yes, the world today, actually even a lot of the Christian world today, tells us that the key to a full life is a life full of experiences. The world will tell us that the key to a full life is a life full of experiences. Great food, big house, large family, foreign holidays, annual ski trip, holiday home in Sardinia. Even Christians in the the UK tend to think that we we can just bolt a bit of religion onto the side of all those lovely things and carry on as we were. We live just the same life as all of our friends who aren't Christians, but maybe we give 10% to the church uh, of our income. Or perhaps we're a little bit more careful about our drinking than our friends. Or perhaps we try to make it to church when we can. But Paul and Christ say no. The Christian life is not that easy. The Christian life is not the secular life with some small changes for a healthier life. It is not the slimming world of lifestyle choices. We are dead to this world. And this world is dead to us. Our lives are to be radically different and transformed lives. So different that only the image of our old life crucified fully sums it up. Paul says we are to live lives obsessed with the cross, obsessed with the sacrifice that Christ made for us and seeing in the transformation that that has birthed in us. I think it is brilliant that we are doing a discipleship course as a church. It's a great thing to be doing. And discipleship can mean a lot of different things depending on the context and, uh, and where you use it. But it actually, in all contexts, it means being a disciple. Um, and what did Jesus' disciples do when he said, come, follow me? They left everything and they lived radically transformed lives, wandering around the Middle East with them. They didn't just go, go well, I'm going to do the fisherman thing on the side, and we'll, we'll do the wandering around thing too, and we'll, we'll balance it all up. They lived radically, completely transformed lives. I'm not saying to give out your job, by the way, um, necessarily. Um, at the end of the day, we are offered a stark choice here. Do we glory in ourselves, our own achievement, our own wealth, our own power, or do we glory in the cross. One of these two choices lives, leads to life. 
and the other leads to the good life. One is life to the full, and one is not what God intended at all. Um, In a moment, I'm going to give you a final chance to turn and talk to the people next to you. But first, I want to offer two options on how we might want to respond this evening. Uh, First of all, it may be that there are some people here who have never responded to what Jesus has done for them before. And um, if you'd like to to tonight, that's fantastic. Um, May I recommend that if that's something you want to do, talk to the person next to you. be open about it now. Come and grab me or even someone holier after the service and have a talk about it. And don't keep it to yourself. Um, it is the beginning of something wonderful. Secondly, for those of us who maybe have been Christians for a short time or a long time, now is a good time to really look at our lives and ask whether we are honestly taking up our cross, whether we are honestly living transformed lives. Are we obsessed with the cross? Maybe we are. I'm not going to deny that some people might have their Christian lives in a really good place. Um, and we just need to take, keep taking baby steps of sanctification. In that case, great. Maybe we're not. And maybe we need to do something really radical. And if I'm, if I, if I'm totally honest, I think the big challenge in preparing this for me has been that I know I am not obsessed in the way that Paul was with the cross. The cross is not at the heart of my life in the way that it was for him. And I need to take a really good look at myself and go, well, how, can I, how can I move it there? How can I change things? Um, so, how can we be living in, in a way that is radically different from those around us? So, um, that's what I'm going to encourage you to turn and talk to the person next to you about. I'm not saying um, confess that you're living a terrible life right now, but what, what can we do radically differently? What could you do radically differently tomorrow um, that will make you more focused on the cross, more obsessed with Jesus' work for you? Talk about yourselves. Okay. So, just going to draw to a close there. Um, in a moment, the um, Bible track and the lifers will um, come back in. But just before, as, as I finish, I'd just like to pray. If you could join me in prayer. Father God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that though there was nothing that we could do about our problem, that you had a solution. Uh, Thank you that we are justified before the Father and the Holy Spirit is with us, helping us to become more Christ-like each day. And we pray as we go out that you would, through your word, teach us to live radical lives that honour you and your sacrifice for us. Amen.